after healing someone at the temple gate. Beautiful. So this is Peter's second sermon. What we have here today in today's text is Peter preaches boldly. He's criticized harshly. And we have the aftermath. Peter and John, they were, how do we say it? They weren't bold disciples. Uh, Peter was bold in his own right, but he didn't quite get the totality of the gospel, at least not in the beginning. And we don't really hear a ton about John. We hear that John maybe was the disciple that Jesus loved, which probably has some deeper implications for who he was as an apostle. We see a little bit more about Peter and Peter's life. So in Peter, we see that he was loud and obnoxious and probably stuff that fishermen would have been in the first place. Can you imagine if you've ever seen the greatest catch? These are relatively uncouth, definitely uneducated, and boisterous, vulgar, uh, kind of not the kind of people you want to bring over for Sunday dinner or to church, necessarily. But Jesus calls them. John was an apostle of John the Baptist, and Andrew, another apostle of John the Baptist, pulls his brother Peter in it. And they learn what relationship in Jesus looks like. So they walk with them. They're with Jesus for three years, and in those three years, they witness some 37-odd miracles. And they're privy, party, to 25-odd parables and a whole bunch of teaching and other dissemination or learning that explains the content of everything these guys just heard, just seen, just witnessed. So three years in, we see a guy like Peter, who's ridiculously obnoxious. He speaks far before he, he thinks, and he acts in ways which shock the people around him. He actually reminds me about myself. So there's a ton of personalities on the spectrum. And uh, recently, I've, I've undergone the DISC profile, and it's just one of the many personality profiles out there. And the D stands for, I forget, super-driven personality. They're a dominant. They are the doers. They are task-oriented. They get things done. They don't really have a lot of time for chit-chat, small talk, and relationships because getting stuff done matters to them more than people do. Then you have the I, which is me. High I. A little bit of D. High I. I is the relational guys. They're the interpersonals. The eyes love to talk. The eyes are idea people. The eyes get passionate about stuff. When the eyes grab onto to something that excites them, they can sell everybody on it. So the eyes are typically the founders of corporations. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, even though he was a very high C, which we'll talk about. You have the S in the DISC, D-I-S-C. And the S are the supportive. They love people. They'll serve people. Very service-oriented. Then you have the, the C, which is the administrators of the bunch. Um, Peter was an I. Peter was like an ID. High I, very relational, love people, loud, tons of ideas out there. But Jesus took that in relationship and reoriented him to the gospel. So we see Peter from move from a bumbling fool to the guy who actually walks on water. Peter walked on water. He's the only disciple in the Gospels that's noted to have had that faith in Jesus to walk on water in an attempt to get to him. Peter also uh, denied Jesus. He was the apostle that 
was so devoted to Jesus, but that when the proverbial poop hit the fan, he walked away. And in between there, he claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. He boldly proclaimed that the things that he had seen and heard Jesus do led him to no other conclusion except for that God was God, that Jesus was the king of the universe. John, called a son of thunder, was either a very explosive personality or a very vivacious personality. We actually don't know which one, but we know that that qualifier, sons of thunder, meant that this guy was probably obnoxious in his own right, maybe about very purposeful and, and passionateable things. But we see two guys here in this text that weren't what they became when they encountered the risen Lord and Savior. I want to read this portion of the text again. I want to talk about three things, actually. So the first thing that I want to bring to your guys' attention is that these were guys who had been with Jesus. The second thing is that there was a man that was absolutely transformed by Jesus. And the third thing is that there's a world out there in desperate need of Jesus. And then I want to bring it home. And I want to give some practical application, some 21st century application for you and me. Stuff that actually makes this text make sense in our current context. Not just for what it meant for those guys. So if you'll allow me, I'm going to read verse 13 to 15. We read, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So I think you have three things happening here. Peter and John were not normal. Someone who was handicapped since birth, doted on since he left his mother's womb, left at the, the temple gates to beg for his sustenance, his daily bread, uh, became normal. And the religiosity of the day, the temple guards, the proconsul, the religious rulers, the elite, they didn't know what normal was. Okay. What this would have meant to those guys in that day, these religious elite, it would have meant that something different was happening. It would have meant that the gospel that Peter and John were proclaiming was different than the Judaism that they had been teaching. And so it was a threat. It was an absolute threat. What was happening was an absolute and utter derivation of what Judaism was. And it's kind of the first major time that something like this happens in the New Testament, specifically here in the book of Acts. So we have five times, we actually have five times, if you guys remember I said this last time, we have five times in the book of Acts where there's uh, a radical gospel proclamation and a fervent turning to Jesus Christ. And these are largely Jews, especially the first half of the book. It's Jews turning to Jesus. And the last half of the book is, is uh, the rest of us turning to Jesus. But we see also in parallel with this growth of the church, which at this point 
I think we can surmise they're probably between 10 and 20,000 people strong. It says, the text tells us 5,000 men. But if we were to say, listen, probably a third of them were married couples with no kids, and the other third of them were probably married couples with lots of kids. So let's say 10 to 20,000 believers in, the sh- in a short time, maybe a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. But this is not a long span in time in history. So you have a theme of the growing church, but running parallel with that, you actually have absolute persecution. So this is the first time that a miracle has, has happened um, in, in, under, on the apostles' watch. Let's say it that way. It's the first time that one of the apostles have done a miracle, and it's Peter. It's the loud, obnoxious, boisterous Peter who's given himself totally to the cause of Jesus. He's been reinstated after denying him. He's been there and filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and he's now preached two tremendous sermons. Guys, go back and read this sermon just before our text in your spare time this week. It is wonderful. But it's a challenge to the Pharisees. It's a challenge to the Sadducees. It's a challenge to everyone that's involved in the temple. Because he's saying, what you believe, it's not normal. You need to align yourselves with the new normal. And in this healing, you see the apostles showing a transition of Jesus' authority to them. So it was Jesus doing all the healings, the 37 miracles. And it was Jesus doing all the teaching. And it was Jesus doing all, like, everything. And now it's the apostles. Like, it got real. It got really real right here. So first time these guys, the, the pro-council, have been forced to deal with the situation, but they attempt to deal with it. So you read, everyone who's anyone comes to be a part of this meeting. Okay. So they confer. Point number two. A man transformed by Jesus. Saying, What shall we do with these men? This is what they said when they asked the apostles to leave. What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. But in order that this might not spread further amongst the people, let us warn them to speak no more in Jesus' name. So they called them in and charged them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. So they recognized that the, the pro-council recognized that this had disrupted their status quo. It was the religiosity of their day that the apostles were calling out, and so it became political pretty quick. I'm not a big politics guy. I just know that when it enters a scenario or a situation, it wrecks stuff. You can't think properly when there's politics. You can't act properly when there's politics. These guys couldn't do their current religion because of the politics. They were stuck. There was an, they were at an impasse. So, just to frame it, the apostles, the 3,000 who had come to faith, the new 2,000 that had come to faith, they're meeting in the temple courts. This is just, they're carrying on as if Christianity was fulfilled Judaism. So, they saw no distinction between them and us. They just wanted to teach the them what us were doing. They wanted the Jews to recognize that Jesus was the risen Lord and Savior, the prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament. But it, it caused a rift. Like, it caused a giant rift. So much so that they sought, they, the religiosity sought how to deal with it. They were threatened with the truth. So, listen, I don't know about you guys, but in my life, 
If, if I'm not being holy, um, when I'm threatened with the truth, sometimes I can turn to t- tend to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to that truth. Sometimes I just ignore the evidence and I push forward. And that's what, that's what these guys were doing. The council was turning a blind eye. They had seen this guy healed at the temple gate. Can, can, I, can we just rehash the story a little bit? I think, I think maybe it's worth it. So John and Peter are going to the temple as usual, probably just as a part of the daily temple prayers. It's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the text tells us. And they're actually going to worship God with everyone else as normal. And they see this guy, and he's like, uh, help? So he's probably withered legs, disheveled. He's probably hunched over. We see, we see these guys outside of Costco and street corners in Abbotsford, like the more, hey, Chilliwack. We see the most grim. One time I was, I was downtown Vancouver. I saw an old guy. He looked so old. He looked terrible. He was skin and bones, and he had no shoes on. And he was just walking around like it looked awful. And so we were actually doing a little bit of a documentary for a, a Bible college project. And so I asked this guy, I said, listen, I'll give you 20 bucks if I can ask you three questions. And he was like, Okay. And so it was a busy corner that he was, that he was standing on. And he looked, this guy looked awful, like awful. He sold the story. And so he said, just come here, though. Like, let's go somewhere we can talk. So he led us down the alley and right to his cart in which he had tons of clothes and food and tons of stuff. And his shoes were sitting right on top of his cart. I was like, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said... I'll spare the expletives. You people won't pay attention to me if I don't do something radical. Okay. Changed my perspective a little bit. I get it. He's got to speak louder than the noise, the rest of the homeless people, because they're all vying for our pennies and nickels and quarters and dollars. But not this guy. This guy was legit handicapped, 40 years old hunched over, brought there by family members, relatives, or close friends in desperate need of attention. John and Peter say, we don't have any cash, man. Look at us. It's not the health and wealth gospel they were promoting. But they said, but what we have, it's yours, man. And they reached out their hand, and they said, get up. And they lifted him up. And the text tells us that instantly his ankles were strengthened, his legs straightened, and he was healed. And from there, he danced and leapt and skipped into the temple with them hand in hand. And everyone saw what had just happened. We read in the text that all of Jerusalem hears about this. Listen, Jesus used to stay outside of the main populace because he wanted to reach as many people as he could before his ministry got shut down. That was one reason. People would come to him instead of him going into crowded circles and getting bombarded. And He had a larger audience on the outside and people just heard. Everyone heard. When someone gets healed, you hear about it. When someone, their life is transformed, you hear about it. There's this guy in Chilliwack I don't know how many people are here from Chilliwack. Not many. None. Okay. I am. And I drive up and down Vetter Road every single day, multiple times a day. 
And have you ever seen James? James sits outside of the pink liquor store by Chevron on Vetter. He just sits there. He's been there. I've been in Chilliwack for five years, and James has been there every single day of my five years. Actually, that's not true. There was one week where I didn't see him, and I actually cried because I thought he was dead. I'm one of the rare people that actually goes and talks to James. Um, he doesn't speak to everybody, and he will not receive things from most people. But I've developed a little bit of a relationship with James in the, the minor moments of lucidity that he has, in which I can bring him home cooking sometimes. Sometimes I bring him his favorite Twizzlers and, and iced tea. Um, and we have little, tiny little conversations before he just loses it and says, I have to go, I'm very busy. But everybody knows about James. He's not sitting at the temple courts. He's outside of a liquor store, kind of on the side. He's not looking for handouts. But he's wrecked. Like, he's broken wrecked. He, the story as it goes is that uh, James was in a drunk driving accident, him being the drunk driver, and he killed a family of three. Everybody knows the story, and everybody I ask to verify it says, that's what James says. So he's punishing himself. He's on the street. He probably had a mental disability before, but whatever happened, it got worse. He is wrecked. You could not talk to him, and he might attack you because he's just scary. But everybody in Chilliwack knows about him, like almost everybody in Chilliwack. Okay, so James's story is really sad because he definitely has something mental going on, and I don't know if there's any physical ailments or handicaps, but if you go to talk to James, you actually have to keep your distance. It smells so bad. And in the summertime, it's about 34 degrees outside, and I brought James an iced caramel macchiato. I know he likes caramel macchiatos from Starbucks, but I brought him an iced one. And I literally could, I saw this, he was sitting on the curb, and there was a stain dripping down the sidewalk and a little trench of dark brown. And listen, man, there was no rain. There was no water. There was no puddles anywhere else. And then it, the smell hit me, and I had to back up as gently and calmly as I could. That's James. Everywhere he sits, there's spots, like ingrained in the concrete spots that lets you know James has sat there. If James met Jesus, which he might. But if you or me were to actually sit down and introduce James to Jesus in a way that he accepted and appreciated and trans transformed his life, all of Chilliwack would hear about it. And he's not sitting at the temple gate for everyone to see. He's just been there long enough that anybody going up and down the street see him. And once you see him, you can't forget it. So I'm telling you, everybody in Jerusalem and beyond knew who this guy was. This 40-year-old, handicapped from birth, paraplegic, quadriplegic, whatever his circumstances were, he was healed by the transformative power of the Holy Spirit through the person of Peter and John because they had been with Jesus. Point number three. A man transformed by Jesus. That's point number two. I don't have my point number three. What's my point number three? A world in desperate need of Jesus. I do have it right here. I got nervous. We're all James. I'm not kidding you guys. We're all the guys sitting at the temple gate called Beautiful. And no handouts that anybody has to give us is going to make us whole. We're all broken. 
Some of you guys have mental and emotional issues. Some of you guys have broken hearts that you don't know how to get over. Some of us have been abused mentally, emotionally, or physically. And that's a tough road to, to walk down. Some of us have massive conflict every single day of our lives. And we don't know how to deal with it. But it cripples us. And it infuriates us. And it wrecks us. Some of us have gastrointestinal issues. Some of us aren't very athletic and wish we were, or don't have much and wish we did, or have too much, and it's crippled our ability to give. I don't know. Guys, there's a thousand different things, different reasons, different ways that we could address that we're all broken. If we, if we were all open and honest with each other in a big circle, we would be astounded at the reality of everyone's personal mess in life. It's just the way it is. We live in a broken and fallen world. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit, everything broke. And so here we are, desperate to be whole, looking for hope in a world that sometimes offers very little. And then Jesus, dot, dot, dot. I think what's cool about this story of the guy that's healed is how radically his life changes afterwards. So do you guys remember the parable of the leopards? Leopards. Rawr. Lepers. It's the parable of the lepers. So there's ten of them. And uh, Jesus heals them. Like, <laughs> get real. Their noses are falling off. They're missing fingers. Probably hobbling on one leg. They're gross. They're crusty. Their skin is a mess. And what's worse is there's no medical equipment or technology or pills to help these guys live any sort of a normal life. And Jesus heals them. Bing, bang, boom. Done. Healed. And they leap and skip and don't praise God, except for one. They all go away except for one guy. He comes back. He's like, thank you. Like, fall on his face in worship. Thank you. <laughs> it's a humbling story. It's like, who are we? Are we the one or are we the nine? Because Jesus transforms. Listen, if you don't hear me say anything else today, Jesus transforms. And the question we have to ask is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I could tell you guys stories. I could tell you guys epic tales about my conversion. I wanted nothing to do with God. I'd grown up in a, in a Catholic home, a strict Catholic church that I had to go to all the time at home and at school, and I hated God. I absolutely hated God. It was devoid of relationship. My home was devoid of love. My friend circle was devoid of companionship. I was so empty and lonely. And now I have a testimony of God's love, and you all do. You guys all have a story about here's where I was, and here's where I am now. Or here's where I was, and here's where I'm going. And that's your testimony. Your truth about what Jesus did in your life is your testimony. And we've all got one. And some of yours would blow us away. Maybe most of yours would blow us away. You guys, you have incredible stories about who Jesus is and was and is being in your life. And that's yours. 
to love and to cherish as you learn to love and cherish your God. I think there's three important things that I want to note here within this point about the world in desperate need of Jesus. Because we see some radical transformation in two unruly guys. We see some radical transformation in a crippled beggar. And sometimes we ask ourselves, what does this mean? But when we're talking about a world in desperate need of Jesus, I think what we can extract from this is that in order to speak with courage and boldness and clarity and forthrightness, you don't need any sort of advanced training. You don't have to go to school. I'm not saying that stuff's not good. That stuff's fantastic for the right purpose. But do you know how many people's lives you could transform just by sharing your testimony? By letting them know who you used to be and what you currently struggle with and what God's being and doing in your life? You're an instant evangelist. We saw how radically Peter and John changed. Peter's like the most insane preacher in the New Testament. I love his sermons. They're unreal. But he wasn't that bold for Jesus before, ever. He, he denied him. He followed him until it cost him something. And then the second that it, that it did, he caved. And now look at him. Now he's speaking to an entire group of religiosity that wants to eventually, in the next couple chapters, murder him. In fact, they do. What we see in the New Testament is 13 guys, actually 14 guys, 14 guys crazy devoted to Jesus, and then a whole bunch more. So you had the original 12. Judas commits suicide. He's replaced with Matthias, and then James is shortly beheaded in a couple of chapters, and then Jesus' brother James gets pulled into the fold. And so you're back to an, a, a group of 12 disciples who everyone except for the Apostle John is murdered viciously. Not just like stoned like Stephen, but like viciously murdered. It was worth it. This gospel that they were delighting in and promoting, it was worth it. They had been with the substance of that gospel, and it meant everything to them. Nothing else. Everything paled in comparison. The second thing I want you guys to walk away with is that we're not called to win, but to witness. We're called to speak about what we've seen and heard. We don't have to argue a defense or defend our assumptions because, honestly, that's too big of a burden for you and me to carry. Jesus is the one responsible for winning. We're just responsible for believing and being bold. Okay, I was speaking at Northview a couple of weeks ago, and um, I made a comment that somebody approached me about after. It was like an awful email, but you get those, right? If you guys want to email me, it's uh, dlowen at northview.org. But honestly, it was a terrible comment. It was like, I can't believe you would say that you don't know theology and blah, blah, blah. I didn't hear any expletives, which would have been awesome, but it was like it cut me to the core. It just said, like, who are you, Dave Lowen? Can't believe you. Pfft, unreal. 
heretic. And what I said was that we're not called to make converts, but disciples. No, 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 no. I said we're not just called to make converts, but disciples. And what I was being eviscerated over was the word just. But I am telling you the most burden-freeing, monkey-off-your-back truth that I hope you will ever learn other than the fact that Jesus loves you to death and you don't have to do anything for that. And that's that it's not your responsibility to win. You don't have to convert the world to Jesus. He does. But it's our responsibility to proclaim the truth. It's our responsibility to live in light of the gospel in such a way that's attractive to an outside world. It's our responsibility to share our faith with people. I think the point that we're supposed to read here is that guys who weren't became ridiculously bold for God. As we should too. As Nike coined the phrase in 1988, uh, just do it. It's funny. It was actually like a mass murderer by the name of Gary Gilmore who was facing immediate execution by a firing squad. And bold as brass, he said, go ahead and do it. And Nike coined the phrase to preach to an athletic community who wanted to get out there and Nike wanted to make money off them getting out there and now it lives in our minds forever. But that's our job. Just do it. How much more bold can we be about a God who actually lived and died for us? Lived and died for us. So you don't have to. I think there's three things that I believe and I bet all of you guys do too. And if you don't, I hope you do. Number one, there's a God. He loves you. And so number two, he gave you a means by which to know him. That's his special revelation. That's specific stuff. But even if you don't have this, he gave you everything else. And number three, that God who loves you and wants to know you has done everything for you. You literally cannot do a thing to earn your own salvation. No thing. Nothing. The best words ever penned in Scripture were, it is finished. Not because you did something, but because he is something. Not because you can, but because he did. Not because fill in the blank. Guys, nothing. There's nothing left to do. It was accomplished through the life and the death and the resurrection and the spirit empowerment of the one true God that John and Peter boldly proclaimed. It's finished. All right, listen. I've heard this said, and I love it. And I'm going to tell it to everybody I talk to every time I preach, every time I teach. 
And every time I sit down with somebody to talk about Jesus, whether it's over coffee or I'm trying to calm an argument, that if we know Jesus, we'll love him. And if you love him, you'll want to know him. Let that sink in. Confession. Cecily's singing songs up here. And I'm here with a mask on, thank the good Lord. Because if I didn't have one on, you guys would have seen me ugly crying. Like, I'm not kidding. Do you guys listen to the words? These choruses? we sing bring you to your freaking knees I don't know if you guys are here and you have everything I don't know if you guys are here and you have nothing would you please trust me trust scripture when you read that Jesus is everything In addition, I want you to know that if we believe the gospel, if we really love Jesus and believe the gospel, we'll share it. If you believe the gospel with all of your heart and it transforms you like from that which you were to that which Jesus has in store for you, it's an ongoing process, of course, but what you were and what you are now, you'll want that for everybody. I want that for James. I want that for my kids. Do you? I want that for my relatives that I actually can't stand being in a room with because they're so vile and vulgar and stand against everything that I believe in. Do you? I want that for coworkers that drive me so insane, I would quit what I'm doing to never talk to them again. Do you? How important is the love of Jesus for you in terms of your community and your city, your country, and your world? When you're at the grocery store, what better opportunity than the lady standing behind you who's literally doing nothing than to have a spiritual conversation, as light as that may be. Or when you're picking your kid up from daycare. Or when you're speaking with your coworkers and your boss. You have a testimony, and it's powerful. And if nothing else, you get the pleasure of sharing it and hopefully introducing people to the God that you yourselves are so passionate about. You get that. Not that you're going to save them because it's not your job to convert, but because you have the opportunity to ride a wave that God's causing, to be a part of something that he's doing. And ultimately, like the apostles saw, a transformed life in the form of a handicapped guy begging at the gate of beautiful, and you can see life's changed too, which in turn will empower you and transform the concept of religion to a world that's so desperate in need of hope.
So don't let fear or politics or anything get you guys down. When you've had a personal encounter with Jesus, like really been with Jesus, changed by his message, transformed by his resurrection, and actually rocked by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll know inextricably that Jesus is worth it. I want that for you guys so bad. You have no idea how bad I want that for this congregation. That Agassi could be transformed, that your homes would be transformed, that your, your children and your grandchildren would go on to transform the lives of others by the life-changing testimony that they have to share, the gospel witness that they can communicate because he's worth it. Can I pray for you guys? God, you're absolutely amazing. We love you to our core. And God, we just ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would fill our hearts and our minds and our souls that we would be able and willing to speak your love and your truth. That it would first transform us and turn us into a people so totally devoted to your cause, but that that would overflow like a boiling pot of potatoes and change the lives of people around us because that's the kind of God you are. God, let your love shine through. Use us as your vessels and allow us to see this gospel transform not just a people, but a community and a city and a nation for you. God, you're so good. Amen.